For those of us who've had the pleasure, distinction, frustration, honor, shall we say, of working with the United States military, you know that as an organization, they really have this concept of longevity of the organization kind of front and center. It's incredibly frustrating to deal with the Department of Defense or with the military sometimes because just when you figure out who the person is you need to be working with, they up and permanently change their duty station. They go to a different command, they go to a different division, they go to a different part of a ship, for example, and you have to start basically all over again. But when you look at the structure of the Navy, for example, it makes sense. Ships of war fight in very dynamic situations. You need to have people who are conversant and familiar in the full operation of the ship because they know when they are doing their job, when they are at their peak moment, whatever was perfectly set up 20 years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, five seconds ago, may not and probably won't be perfectly set up. You need replacements. You need to have the person behind you ready to step in and take over your role at any moment's notice, which is why I believe the United States military is such a flexible, such a dynamic, and such a strong force. Because within the code of the U.S. military is the concept that you are always training your replacement. We have this belief in theory that we're the only ones who can do our job. We're the smart ones. If you have that theory, and if that's true to you, maybe you should reflect a little bit about what you're doing and how you're doing it. We are, for the most part, interchangeable, replaceable parts. That's how society functions, and that's how it continues to move forward. Because when you leave your position, you leave this earth, you leave this role in life, somebody has to come in behind you and take over for what you were doing. That's the only way progress continues to be made. In my own professional life, I have started viewing that role of being a person who is constantly moving through the stream of my profession, leaving behind it those who are ready to step in and take over in my role, while hopefully taking over the role of those people who came before me. It's the only way it functions. Unfortunately, in bike racing, we oftentimes have this cult of personality, this idea that only this one person is capable of doing this one job. This race is his race. This team is her team. And that mindset has made things very static. That mindset has trapped us in this belief that the only way to move forward is to buy into this person's idea rather than the idea itself. Because people are unwilling to let go, they're unwilling to allow others to come in, grab the ball for a few minutes, and push it down the field. That's where the U.S. military is so genius because it knows it has to. It knows that as a fighting force, the only way for it to continue to function from inception to mission to mission to mission to success is by many different people grabbing a hold of the ball for a brief period of time and moving it forward. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is your source for the full bevy of shows that is available to anybody who wants to find out more about bike racing, whether it be cyclocross, gravel racing, the Slow Ride podcast, this show right here about Criterium Racing, we've got you covered from soup to nuts, from dirt, to clean, from happy, fun, laughing, to serious, introspective commentary. 
please go support and subscribe to the Wide Angle Podium and help fund this content creator-driven effort. Thank you so much. Okay, today's episode is with two people who have picked up the ball for a period of time. They've been a part of this sport as bike racers. They've been a part of this sport as media analysts and commentators now, as bike race promoters, as people who are trying to educate. I believe they get it. I believe that they understand. Daniel Holloway, Gabe Lloyd, understand where they are in this sport. And they've come in at a time when we are ready for them to pick up the ball and move us forward. We are ready for them to help us learn more about what made them good as athletes, what makes them exceptional as commentators and promoters and collaborators, and just good people to listen to and to learn from. So without further ado, we present to you Daniel Holloway and Gabe Lloyd. Three, two, oh, you guys see it. One. Oh, wow. This is official. It was a countdown. It's like cyclocross, except better. The light is turned green. So we're off and running. On the um, ammo. Oh, God. I, I miss I miss Dave Towley so much on a regular basis. Um, we, of course, are lucky to have the cycling color commentator that we didn't know that we needed in life, but now can't get enough of, Daniel Holloway, and also the best-dressed bike racing promoter in America, hands down, Gabe Lloyd. How are you two doing tonight? Very good. Very good. Yeah, We're here. We're thrilled. We're here. Yeah. We're going to talk bike racing because between these two podcasts, The Call-Up and Criterium Nation, we have now maximized, monopolized, cartelized the entire Criterium media scope and scape of the world. I want to start with the classic theological, philosophical kind of question of chicken and the egg. Are you guys familiar with the chicken and the egg question? Which came first? Was it the chicken or was it the egg? Yes. I've heard of this. Yes. We're going to answer that question right here, right now. The challenge is, is that everybody in America or everybody who's ever posed this question to anybody poses the question by saying, this is an unanswerable question. It is a question that you cannot answer because Chickens come from eggs, and there's no way to get an egg chicken without a chicken. So therefore, how did this exist? Which one came first? It's unanswerable. Gabe, you look like you've got an answer to the question. How do we get the answer there? I mean, like science-wise, is that what we're talking about right now? Because there's like evolution and stuff we could talk about, Darwin, sort of that stuff. Is that what we're going down? Absolutely. You reject the premise of the question. Just because everybody has told you that it is an unanswerable question doesn't mean that it is actually unanswerable. I mean, evolution has proven to Gabe and to all of us that the egg came first because the chicken evolved from the dinosaur. I actually went down this entire research path a few minutes ago, and there are a lot of publications that (laughs) delve into the question of how did the chicken evolve? And it it came from, oh, God, what what is it called? The red yungle fowl about 58 to 75,000 years ago. And that is the version of the chicken that we ended up domesticating. And it took me down a side path of what are the animals that have actually been domesticated versus animals that are tameable. You see down in the corner here, there is a, you know, a Maine coon who is not domesticated. (laughs) I am merely his servant. So I'm the domesticated one. But, you know, Daniel, 
you're the bike racer among the three of us, the one with the most accomplishments in bike racing. How many times in your bike racing career did you hear from an older, established, grumpier, saltier human being when they said, that's just how it's done. Don't think too hard about it. Yeah, mostly in Belgium. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you can't have plants in your bedroom. You can't have the aircon on. Um, you can't melt cheese because that, you know, creates more fat than what exists in said cheese. But mostly in the, the U.S., it was, you know, the mentors I had, I, I was very fortunate that it was, I made this mistake, so don't do it. And it was, I was definitely kind of in a circle of guys that gave education with the reason, you know, don't do this because, you know, explanation, not just don't do this. And you're left with like, why not? You know, what are the like repercussions of doing said thing? So for me, I was very fortunate that in my ecosystem, it was like, I, I got a lot of definition. And because after the, you know, this is just how it's done. It's like, okay, well, what, why, why was that done this way? And I was, people were very educational in, in that. So you had perspective, right? Like your mind, the mind could grow around that idea or that reason. And that just kind of, that was like my developmental race brain, right? In this, in this sport. And I've kind of done my best to like outside of racing, have that same kind of mindset or thought process uh, in air quote real lives or, or, you know, now being, being a parent um, and trying to, you know, it, there's a no, but this is the reason why, right? We're, you know, definitely looking at things. This is never a problem, right? It's just a situation we have to figure out. I am waiting for Dove to break into this conversation <laughs> and to talk to you about potty training, because I know that that is a, a staple corner of the entire call-up experience of the potty <laughs> training discussion. About podcast, really. Yep. Yeah. But let's, you know, like... One of the earliest lessons that I was taught in bike racing was by the late, great Steve Tilford. And it was, you know, 2001. And I had just gotten into the sport from swimming and I didn't know anything. And so this was back in that period of time where I was wearing the biggest, baggiest boxer shorts that you could ever imagine. And I was like, shoot, I'm going to get into the sport where I'm wearing spandex. So I better go out and buy briefs so I can have briefs under my spandex and it won't like there's no panty lines showing. And so I get riding with Steve Tilford and he's just like, what are you doing? I don't understand. Are you wearing underwear underneath your bibs? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't even bibs. It was just shorts at that point. And I'm like, yeah, of course. I mean, is this not, and he just takes his bibs, pulls them down and displays this wonderful white butt. And he says, we don't wear briefs underneath our bibs and then he went on to explain why i had that level of mentorship you daniel have had that level of mentorship gabe when it comes to race promoting because that's something that you're exceptionally talented at doing did you get mentorship from the steve tilfords of the world telling you this is how a race is properly done or this is the thing that you don't want to do in your race like have non-zip tied metal barriers with pointy things, you know, spiked out into the road. I went to Trimble Racing University, so that was my uh, foray into race promotion. So Casey and I had the opportunity to jump in the deep end with the Red Hook Crit, and we, uh, we learned a lot about bike race promotion and the details therein from Dave Trimble and then that whole crew that found to be invaluable and that's really what we've pulled on pulled through from our experience in the past i guess uh, we first started doing that in 2013 so i guess 10 years now is what we've been doing in that time have you ever seen a book a pamphlet an article anything in writing that explains to you in detail what are the positives, negatives, pluses, minuses? What are the things that you want to avoid or the things that you should do in race promotion? I haven't seen a book, but I've studied <laughs> a number of uh, you know, documents and blueprints from my buddy Liam 
has this fantastic event production company in London, and he was part of the Red Hook Crit crew. And Liam has done an amazing job documenting a lot of his process. And then Liam, just having worked with him, he's been a really great resource for me as far as sight lines and fence placement and other things in that regard. And then David Trimble, also a really great resource for me in that regard. Um, but a lot of it is actually pulling from bike racing and Casey having won. I mean, her accolades are pretty good. I mean, she won six national titles and she was on the national team and she was a pretty good bike racer and she's very detail oriented. And so she is really good at some of those safety components that I think you talk a lot about as well. And I can contribute to that. I didn't have the accolades on the bike that, that Daniel had, but I had to survive. And part of that was learning how to be really efficient. And I had a great network here in the Lehigh Valley with guys like Kyle Wamsley and Bill Elliston and some of those guys who sort of taught me how to survive in a way that taught me race lines and stuff like that. Daniel, I, um, I have a copy of Bill Shiken's, uh, encyclopedic treatise upon cyclocross racing uh skills drills and belly aches that he and uh I believe jeremy powers put together a few years ago do you have a copy of the criterium racing version of that book that you used to school yourself no like there was never like my my race mentor was dave mccook you know and he was probably one of the craftiest son of a bitches that raced criteriums um and he definitely was a guy that was without the big lead out a majority of his career i mean he was on story teams he was on prime alliance but he always cut his teeth you know he's just a gritty gritty rider and he didn't have the big hp of jonas or gord frazier uh gagioli you know those guys that he was racing at so he had to be incredibly crafty um and he was just yeah a bulldog and he, you know, he has his own reputation of when and how he raced, but I took the, the, the fundamentals of that. Right. And just, you know, realized what worked for me and what didn't work for me. You know, I, th- I think what a lot of people don't quite grasp is that like, you know, I was on the national team and, and went to Europe for three or four years and it took me, you know, three years to be able to win a race in Europe, you know? And then once I got my feet wet, figured it out, I was like successful. Right. But it was, too late. They, there wasn't enough, you know, results over results to then move up once I was past U23. And then I just kind of got caught up into the, I got to go back to Europe. And when I raced on Bissell and Kelly, I was very single-minded and made like narrowed my scope of like, these are three races I need results at. Everything else doesn't matter. You know, foolishly, I was too narrow-minded. And then I got the opportunity to cut my teeth on, you know, the track in six days. And, and that is the ecosystem that was eight years of racing at that level that by the time I came back to the U S in 2014 and rates raced UHC, I had eight years of development, right? Seeing millions of circumstances and experiences and, you know, plays. It was like, this works, this doesn't work. This works, this doesn't work. Right. A lot of tons and tons of failure and trial and error. And I was then finally like mature enough and physically good enough to just put it out there. And so it was a big body of work that accumu- like that then people got to see and watch. Kind of me put on display from 2014 through 2019 as I, as I race crits. And so that's what I think in the modern era just, you know, and we didn't have, social media was just coming on and people just didn't realize what my past was. They just thought I kind of showed up out of nowhere because I wasn't on the national scene, you know, racing against UHC. I was in the UK. I was an amateur in California. And, you know, I was kind of just off the radar and all of a sudden I just like popped up and there was people that knew me, you know, clearly, but then there was a lot of like people watching from the outside. There was like, where'd this guy come from? You know, just kind of thought I was a bit of a random, a random guy. The kind of the, the question and I'll pose this to both of you is what happens after you guys are, are gone from this sport? Or what happens after there's no more Rob Laybourne involved promoting armed forces or, you know, the folks like Malcolm promoting Tulsa tough. What happens when those people are gone and they haven't written down their experiences or you haven't 
written down your experiences to provide to the next generation. Where does this wealth of knowledge that comes from eight years of cutting your teeth on the track circuit in Europe, where does that go? And why are we so okay with people just letting it disappear into the ether? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's kind of the the impetus of, you know, starting the call up with Gabe. Um, it was something I had on my mind 2020 when everything kind of, you know, shut down and I retired and things kind of got rolling is like, I have this Rolodex. I have this, you know, vast, um, you know, book of experience to share and, you know, talking with a lot of different people is like, you should coach, you should do this, like, you know, share your experience, um, you know, your knowledge. And it was just for me finding the right platform and methodology that I felt best suited for me to get my, you know, message across, so to speak. And so we definitely started, you know, this whole race thing. Let's talk about the race as, you know, not as journalists, but as analysts, you know, really what mistakes are people making and what are right moves people are making. And people can go back and rewatch those things, you know, that we commentate or talk about, we go back and read, we can go back and read books, right? Cause we always miss something. You go back and watch a movie cause there was something you missed. And then that kind of, you know, gave definitely helped laid a really strong foundation to then have the wild hair of like, well, what if I did this live in a bike race? You know, there's, there's no more raw, like I can't do it now, you know, like sitting here, I can't watch a YouTube video and talk you through it. Cause there's so much, as you know, from riding a bike, riding a group ride, racing a crit, there's so many small details that you have to just be there in the moment to talk about it. Right. And so it was like, I think I can do that, you know, share everything that I think in a bike race and just say it out loud, you know, and give, this is what I'm thinking. And this is why this is what I'm planning for. This is why, right. Going back to the, the mentorship, not just do this, do this because X, Y, Z, because in three laps, this is what's going to happen. And this is what you need to do to be there, you know? And so I felt that I could, could do that. And, you know, I had great support um, from gateway and Gabe to help, produce that product to see, you know, it was eight weeks to an ACC crit. And so I learned a lot about, you know, myself and getting, be able to get physically um, in shape and see if I kind of still had that um, mindset to do the work that was needed in that short period of time. And then, yeah, get into a crit and not to be corny, but it's just like riding a bike for me getting in there, quite a few close friends that watched that. And they were like, Oh yeah, you could see when you were like, Oh, this is like strange to then like, okay, you've clicked on and they could just see the difference, just my body language, you know, just kind of how I was moving. And it definitely did take a couple laps for me to be like, oh, this is like a bit foreign. And I'm not sure to be like, you know, all of a sudden the race brain just like, okay, we're ready to go. And then now I can like openly have fun and share and share all these things and not have that pressure of like being hyper protective of myself and my energy, you know, to win the race. It was like, my, my goal is now to show you how to move up, how to move around, how to save energy, how to set things up. And it's like, okay, look, wow, that happened. Like I did it right because it was easy. And I moved up 40 spots. Let me go back and do that again. Because, you know, when a master does something right, it looks effortless. It looks easy, you know, but they can show you over and over again in different circumstances. And so that was my goal. And I think for the most part, I got pretty close to, to doing that. What I was missing was the last two and a half laps is that's, you know, when the knives really come out and you see who, who the butcher is. And so I just didn't, you know, I was not sharp enough to play that game. <laughs> well, the good thing is, is that all you have to do is strap four extra pounds of electronics and equipment on your back and you can do it anytime you want <laughs> now. So, yeah. you know, I can, I can clearly see this being a gears and guitars sort of thing. You might want to go down Winston Salem, do it at, at Athens. You, you know, you never know how entertaining it could be. Spartanburg, that 800 meter crit course, you, you'd get the people watching the video dizzy yep. by the end of that. Yeah, no, I think, you know, it's, you know, I've, you know, put it out there that, you know, I'd like to do more of this next year. I think there's, you know, some race promoters that are pretty excited at the opportunity, you know, it's just kind of putting the pieces together and see how to make it work. And I think, yeah, doing 10 or 12 races would really feed the appetite of, of our little niche world. And I can go to those races with, you know, more planning, (laughs) a better playbook, if you will, more setup. Yeah. So it's again, just this educational product that people can go back and reference year after year, time after time, and always find 
a little nugget for them to have a better experience. And that's kind of my mindset. My goal is that with everybody else, that's kind of trying to do something in the cycling world, right? To be splashy or capture this or that, you know, I I want my legacy to be that, that you can always go back and and reference a, a learning opportunity, right? And that's, I think, as we see over time, those that were educators are those that are referenced most. And so that's kind of, you know, part of my legacy if that I've, I did it, you know, I have a, a result sheet that's pretty long and then now I can educate people on how that was achieved kind of from here on out or as long as I'm kind of physically able to do it. So you've succeeded in giving me about 30 different follow-up questions, <laughs> but, uh, I want to get Gabe in here before I settle into all the follow-up questions with you, Daniel. And, you know, Gabe, where, where did this idea about live streaming at a high quality, a race where there was a commentator commentating on things going through, where did that idea come from for you? That was Daniel's idea. (laughs) I mean, full, full credit to Daniel. He, he really had that vision and I'm really good at trying to help facilitate that. He asked a lot of questions and we brainstormed through a lot of different ideas and my role really became the sideline reporter in a way. I mean, it was just on YouTube comments for this first iteration of it and I was able to answer some questions and to help some people understand really what they were watching because I think a lot of people were assuming that they were watching some guy's GoPro they were watching a guy try to protect himself versus what Daniel just described or a rider teaching us and educating us and being able to intentionally execute a lot of different moments that wasn't initially clear to some people and my role simply became to to help get everybody on the same page as best I could. I may be selling myself a little short on some regards. Like we, yeah, I no, Gabe we, played like the vital role is like, Hey dude, I have this idea, you know, and using all of his experience from, you know, a race promoter, you know, on like, what would, what would a race promoter want from this? What, what experience, what would they want to see? What's a product that would, you know, we could build that could grow. Right. And so very much getting his experience from that side, that view of things definitely, help create that product. Like I was just kind of a conduit, right? I was like the, the meat sack riding a bike that then is like the visual, you know, product again, that's actually sellable. Um, Gabe was very much a part of that, but also then hearing his version in the races and experiences he went through, you know, we, we kind of have joked and we want to share that story, you know, future episodes of the podcast, but it's like, you have a guy that races in the top 10, the whole race, he's got one experience. Then you have a guy that races in the middle of the race. He's got, you know, his stories. Then you have the guys in the back and they have their stories. And so it was being very mindful of like the experience a guy like Gabe when he was racing was experiencing something so different than what I would would experience. And so as being mindful of that as the, you know, curator of the video of like, go share that experience, go back there and and be in the wash machine, be in the fight, you know, be in that mess that Gabe always experienced, you know, and then here's how do you get out of this? You know, here, here's how you move up to the next level and survive. Cause if we look at it, everybody tells you, it's like, it's just as hard as at the front is in the back. So why not just be in the front when you're, when you're going to be hard, you know, and there was guys, whatever it was, number 70, I think it was, could get himself back to front, but he didn't have any of the skill set or knowledge to stay there. And so he just kept going back to front, back to front. And then eventually he's empty. You know, he can no longer move. So he's just needs the skill set and the knowledge to be able to place himself in the middle and survive and thrive and be efficient and then, and slowly move up. So Gabe definitely helped, you know, frame the mindset of like, we have to capture that, tell that story, you know, and kind of work the back, work the middle, work the front. So, you know, that's to that end. Yeah. I mean, thank you, Daniel. I feel like that's really perfect because for us, for me, this project is also very much from the call up to Daniel's live project. They're all about trying to help us break the stasis that's at the front of the Peloton in a way. So like I was pretty good at bracing bikes, but I never really figured out how to break that bubble consistently 
had a few local guys who were pretty good. Like I was talking about Wamsley, uh, Shane Klein was another one that was local to me. And so we'd race a lot together and Shane in regional races was always very successful and he'd always be like, stay on my wheel. And I could, but I sort of needed to see what Daniel executed in St. Louis to really like put it together. Like I was such a visual learner, but to be able to sit and study and to watch him like break through that fold repeatedly, it became more than just like reading a book or having somebody the better than you tell you what to do. It became jumping on the shoulders of that person and getting a first person perspective of, Oh, when they say don't pedal, but move up, that's what that means. Right. And that's the educational layer Rob, like you initially had asked us, a few minutes ago, like what's the legacy essentially. And I think that documenting this, this layer of how over and over is going to be the best thing because it, hopefully it'll allow some kid that we've n- never heard of before to learn how to break through and all of a sudden be at the front and be competitive. And it'll give us an interesting story. Now, stories are what this whole thing is about, and hopefully that's what this project can do. Yeah, and with the advent of modern training, like you can go on the internet and type cycling, you know, 12 weeks to fitness and get 100 different training plans to get somebody fit. But there's no 12 weeks to learn how to race, you know, and and there's people, you know, like myself was very fortunate to have mentors to teach me how to race and curate a mindset that when I was racing guys that were better you know, when I was 19, maybe, and I was racing super weak at the time and I was, I was fit enough to battle the lead out train and be up there and be in the mess. But I just remember Brad Huff yelling at me, just like, just watch, just like get behind me and watch. And it was, you can take that two ways. You can take it as like him being a bully and not wanting the fight or resistance from a young punk trying to get a result. Or you can take it as like, this is a learning opportunity. Right. And I had just like, my mindset is this sport was like, it was longevity. I want to be here forever. You know, I want to, I don't need just one result. I want a hundred results. And the way to get a hundred results is to learn. So I just parked myself behind Huff and Friedman and the lead out, you know, and was just like, watch what they do. You know, when I was younger, following McCook around like local P12 crits. And it wasn't about getting a result or following his wheel to second or third. It was just watching the finesse, right? Those, those decisions that save you energy, right? Efficiency, move places. And so it was taking that mindset that I don't see at all nowadays with kids that are plenty strong, can move around at will, right? And just want to bang and fight and fight and fight and waste energy. They don't actually want to just take a deep breath and sit behind the lead out and watch Justin and how he moves around or Ty or you know, Gomez or Alfredo or, you know, any of these guys that are winning, they don't just want to sit back there and watch. They just want to fight and fight and fight. And you talk, you ask them like, what do you, what's your goal? What's your aim? And they just kind of look at you like blank and they go, oh, I don't know. And they don't like, they get caught so in the moment, in the five laps, last five laps in, in being at such a microscopic level that they don't like expand the vision, right? They don't, they can't, they're not thinking five corners ahead. It, it's truly corner to corner, you know, and it's just, I got to be inside, got to be inside, got to be inside. Well, it's like, I don't know if you thought about being outside, outside, you'd be inside, you know, and, and how does this corner, how did this multiple corners in a row always play out, you know, and I don't see guys think having that mindset. They just want to fight and fight and fight instead of just being like, I'm 19, I'm good. I'm just going to sit and watch. I'm going to sit and watch. I'm sit and watch. I'm sit and watch because so often than not, they get to a lap and a half to go, or they get to two laps to go and they explode and they actually don't see the business end of how to win it. They don't see the, the final details of how Justin won night one of Tulsa on 2023. It was a masterclass, you know, to, to do what he did, you know, was just like, yeah, that takes a lot of time and a lot of learning to do that. And if, a kid was to, to just pick him to follow, they would have learned more in that one race than they would a season of just battling nonstop and exploding and not see moments like that. We normally get 15, maybe 20 
starts in a season. You know, if you're a typical amateur bike racer, you're the garden variety cat four, cat three, especially if you're not in a major metropolitan area or you're not blessed with the Tuesday night world's crit, you know, you don't get that many opportunities to actually race. So when you do, it's kind of like, oh my God, I need to get every last ounce of this race experience out of me. And I fear that sometimes it, it stymies creativity and it stymies the ability of a normal person to do or to take a risk, which is, you know, Gabe, we were on a, we were recently at the National Association of Professional Race Directors. Mm -hmm. I was talking a little bit about Somerville and my love of Somerville because it's a race where, frankly, nothing matters for the vast majority of the race because the course is not selective enough to put you in a situation where if you make a mistake, you'll be punished for it. So you're free to do basically anything you want and know that you can catch back on before the field goes by you. So if you're like, I want to attack six laps in a row right after corner two, you can do it. But in a lot of the races that we have, maybe it's because of the money it costs or whatever, you are pigeonholed to do only what succeeded for you the prior time. And yeah. success might be just, I didn't get dropped. I mean, I think our advice is go race the velodrome. Yeah, hundred you know? percent. I mean, I was fortunate enough to grow up in the Bay Area with Hellier and it was racing two times a week on the track and you race four races a night and you get exposed to three other categories that are racing four races. So you're exposed to 20 different outcomes per night, twice a week. That's 40 different outcomes plus a junior race and an elite race potentially once or twice on the weekend. So you're seeing if you put the track in your life, if you have that resource, you know, not every, you know, we have a few, you know, but if, I encourage everybody that has a track within shouting distance to f figure out how to implement that. If you want to be a level up your racing, right? Go to get better. You have to have more race experience and a track is going to provide outcome after outcome. You get to test multiple things a night. You get to see other people succeed and fail and why and why it didn't work. And so going back, we only have 10 or 15 race days, you know, and if you don't have a track, find group rides, you know, get that, you know, the, those have like died. Those were very key to my, to my development. It's just this massive group that's always moving and shuffling. And like, as a younger rider that wasn't as strong, it's like, how do I make it to the end? Like, how do I just survive? And it's just, you know, it's so environmental. And, and nowadays the, the ideology is just to go plug in your workout into your Wahoo, stare at it and just get it done. Yeah. It, Oh yeah, totally, man. I mean, there's this amazing Thursday night criterium across the street from the velodrome here and the numbers on that thing are going down because everybody's got these very specific training plans. And the thing is, everyone's still a bad bike racer, right? They're just fitter and they have to learn how to race. Yeah. And also to back up a smidge to something Daniel just said, when you're at track races or when you're at a different weekend event, it's really important to actually watch the other races, right? Like I think I actually got a lot better at understanding bike racing when I started to become a commentator because I was forced to watch the races because when I was racing, I would race my race and then I'd, I'd kind of just screw off, right? I would shoot the shit. I would be changing my gear. I'd be whatever. And then I'd be very focused on myself. I wouldn't watch the finishes of the junior races. I wouldn't watch the finishes of the master's races. I wouldn't watch anything else. I was very focused on me. And so on the track night, I got four finishes and that was it, right? I wasted 12 other opportunities to learn. And then when I became the commentator and I started talking about every race, I was like, oh my God, like there's so much nuance. There's so many opportunities here to learn how to be efficient and how to get to the finish line with less energy expenditure. Uh, you know, it's there's so many layers to being coming a good bike racer that don't involve plugging yourself into some online platform 
to pump out watts. But I've been told that that's the only way that I'll get better is if I get on Zwift and I do the same thing over and over again in, in Yorkshire. You know, that's that's what I've been told. And like I show up in January and I'm winning the group ride in January. Like that's 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 the way that it works. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I guess, you know, going back to like my product, like my FTP for Gateway Cup was 284 or something, you know, at 170 pounds. That's like nothing special. You know, that's like there's a lot of guys that are way better than that. And that whole field, you know, a majority of it, their FTP should have been significantly better, but with racecraft being efficient, you can get yourself really far. And then that's where the training, the specific works comes in. It's it's not to get, it's to succeed with three to go. It's not to get, you shouldn't need fitness to get to three to go. And if you yeah. need fitness to get to three to go, I think we're doing something wrong. Oh you know, God. and did you guys, did you guys watch the onboard at the crit championship thing? You see any of those things pop up on your YouTubes at all recently? Just the Techers one that's faced directly at the bike racer himself. (laughs) Okay. I saw some stuff come up and I was, I was getting anxiety watching everybody take pedal strokes out of every turn. I was just like, and we're like mid pack, like nothing special's happening. And all these dudes are out of the saddle, taking pedal strokes out of every single turn. And I'm like, is this what is this what bike racers do now? Like that's not what you do. Like, why are you burning so much energy so ridiculously for such a long period of time? Like, get to three to go with like the least amount of pedal strokes possible. We used to play this game on one of the teams I was on. We all had power meters because we were spoiled kids. And <laughs> and we used to play this game. How who had the lowest output before so many laps to go and we look at the file at the end of the thing, but like whoever had the lowest wattage output before a certain point in the race, like we didn't get anything. It was just like bragging rights, but I thought it was a good game. Like I actually learned a lot from that little game. Oh my God. Like I just feel like there's so many pedal strokes wasted (laughs) these days. That's what Meyerson has said numerous times on this show. That's what Adam Mills has said. That's what every good bike racer who's come on this show whose job it is to win the race you know you've got the guys whose job it is to go out there make the race hard or to make the race come together or to make the race split up you know and and their goal is to you know pedal hard but if your job is to win why are you basically riding hard until you need to and i don't know when that became apparent to you too yeah i mean i was always like a fat kid and a sprinter like i wasn't the guy with big hp that was going to sit on the front of bike races and light them up and and change the dynamic of the race from the front so it was for me you know physiologically is like you know put into a lane relatively early and it's how do you survive in this lane right it's become you know very crafty and i think as as time went on and when i was racing the crits from 2014 and I would win solo or out of a breakaway and it was, was never by brute force. You know, it was a death by a thousand cuts. It was very surgical in, in doing that. And I can share plenty of race files that would, would back that up to see like, Oh, you know, my normalized power when I won road nationals solo in Louisville, you know, the last 20 minutes of that was like 320 ish Watts. By no means is that spectacular for an elite cat one field in North America, North America, you know, but focusing on aerodynamics, focusing on, you know, pacing, focusing on how to ride that particular course, hyper-efficient put me in that position, (laughs) you know? So it's, yeah, I think a lot of people are plenty fit, you know, and if you're, you're in a Peloton, you get to save, you know, you could have an FTP of, you know, 400, but guess what? You're not going to ride away from 10 guys you know, that are sitting on your wheel. It's just not going to happen. So how do you change that, that dynamic, you know? And that's what I think guys are not learning or figuring out. They just have this mindset of brute force is going to get you to where you want to be or get you to the level, you know, younger guys think that that's just going to be able to level them up. You know, why do you think that is? Why do you think that people are of the opinion? And apparently it's a wide enough opinion 
that, you know, I hear it on the noon ride, you know, here, like the regular training ride. Who's the guy who can go the hardest, the longest? He's clearly the best bike racer here. When in reality, when we get to our faux sprint, he's normally sat up about, you know, 300 or 400 meters to go. Yeah, you know, so where does this belief come from? Yeah, I mean, so it's my opinion, right? There's two things there. There's the the FTP, the quantifiable, like the big number. Oh, I can do X power for this time, right? I'm, you know, pound my chest. I'm super strong. And then seeing said guy not participate in the sprint is the, you know, unwillingness to be accountable for the lack of not winning. He sits up because, oh, I already did the work. I did, you know, I made it so hard. That was my job. Or my coach doesn't want me to mix it up and get dangerous, right? It's like there's always an excuse layered to, why that guy with the big number didn't cross the town line first is, is just how I see it. And like the modern thing is people are very yeah proud to pound their chest on the number they have, right? Cause that's what they can, they can kind of rest on. That's what they can share or show you. This is how good I am. And then there's always context or an excuse of why they didn't go across the line first. And it's, you know, becomes, Oh, that guy sat on this guy. This is like, if we are racing, all that matters is getting across the line first, whether that's with your friends in a town line or you got a number on your back and you're getting paid to do it. Anything up to that point is respectably, you know, fair game within the rule book, you know? And so it doesn't matter what your number is unless you, you know, it's getting across the line first. What do you think, Gabe? I don't disagree with anything Daniel said, but I do wonder if we place so much value on, uh, being the finisher ourselves that we lose sight that there are other roles that are at play for the finisher, right? Like lead outs, for example, or like, are there places in the Peloton for riders who can never be Daniel Holloway's or Justin Williams or Ty Magner's, et cetera, but there's still a perfectly valid place for them. And like, does that change the racing style or approach for any of those kids in a way that, they still feel validated for their effort that they put in the sacrifice that they put in. And we, as a community can also say to them, Hey man, you're a really good, like P three, right. Which would be like the next to last guy before the lead out sort of thing. Like, who is that guy? Like we never talk about that. We talk about the winners. We do picks. We're guilty of it too. We, we pick the top five. We only talk about them. We don't really talk about the lead outs. And, and other nuances within the race of this quote unquote team sport, we sit here and we talk about individuals. And I wonder if sometimes we're guilty of perpetuating this freneticness that's at the front of the field of everybody trying to get to cross the line first. But that's the same thing in every major sport is you're never talking about the setup pitcher. Nobody cares about who the person is who's covering the sixth, seventh, and eighth inning. They want to talk about the starter and they want to talk about the closer. Nobody talks about the the offensive line in football. I mean, we only know that Jason Kelsey exists because his brother's dating Taylor Swift. But aren't some of those guys the highest paid in football? No clue. Absolutely no, no clue. All I know about is how much Tom Brady made. Right. There are some you know, guys on the line that are the highest paid in football because they're so valuable to the like actual execution of the of the touchdown. The, well, that's but the, the Mark people Renshaw, who, right? Yeah, the Mark Renshaws. Well, yeah. Renshaw was always the setup guy for Cavendish. I mean, you know, Cavendish building his team right now. Yeah, he's setting himself up for thirty-five. An old man's put setting <laughs> himself up for thirty-five, and he's going to do it with a bunch of dudes who know what they're doing. He's getting but. Be, best team around him possible and people want to know who's first second and third it's you and i you plural and i who are the ones who are interested in how did first second and third get there and how do we make it so that the rest of the community cares we talk about will harden the three of us talk about will harden all the time because he 
does videos and they're witty and funny and hilarious. And I once had the pleasure of uh, throwing him out of my parents' house <laughs> because he had overstayed his welcome. <laughs> Dude, it's 1030. You need to go someplace else. I'm sorry. You just got to get up and go. You can't sleep in. But, uh, you know, like, how do we make people care about these super critical role players? You know, the Sam Boardman's, you know, the the names are just legion all the time. We talk about them all the time, but we never give them their due and they never get the call up to be, you know, on the podcast in the cycling news article. They're just, they're forgotten warriors. Yeah. I think some of that, I mean, definitely we can do a better job, you know, carving out time on the guys that set up Summerhill, the guys that set up Justin or set up Noah what have you. Sometimes it gets hard. You know, I think we talked about it on our last podcast was we don't get much help from the teams on telling us about riders, showcasing personality. You know, and there's some guys, you know, like the O-line in offenses are quite professionals. They have no interest of, they just want to get in, get out. They want to, they just love their work. They love what they do. They're happy. You know, they've done their job and that's led, led the team to be successful. So there's like there's definitely that kind of balance. There's definitely guys that I rode with were quiet professionals, you know, guys that didn't were so happy to just kind of do their job and kind of just eke out, you know, the side gate. Um, and then we got to relish as a team of having success. You know, you could definitely see that that's what they th- what motivated them, what made them thrive was getting, you know, in a place to do their job at a high level and seeing that it that it paid off. And that's they were more than happy with that. So they didn't need to have a boisterous internet personality, social media, or the the look at me. This is what I did from eight laps to four laps. So we, we missed that. We missed character building, you know, within our ecosystem. That's something that Gabe and I, you know, talk on and off the podcast about. I think that's the biggest thing missing in our ecosystem is, is that we don't have a, you know, no media is truly unbiased, but we don't have an unbiased you know, media source right now that is telling everybody's story, creating characters, creating villains, superheroes, antiheroes, you know, all, all of this, it's left to teams to figure that out themselves. And some teams care a lot. That's all they care about. And there's some teams that just don't care at all. Well, you pointed out recently that if you go to certain teams web pages, you can't find anything out about Anybody other than the superstar, you know, you know very much about Justin Williams because he's on the cover of Rollure or he's been on Bicycling Magazine. But how much do we know about his soon to be former teammate, Sam Boardman? I know that he's got incredible hair, <laughs> but that's pretty much it, you know, and and the same can be said true about, you know, any number of women's teams. They get even less publicity than the men's teams. Yeah. And I I think Gabe and I should pat ourselves on the back, but you can see the NCL announcing riders and how they were doing it pre Gabe and I's podcast and how they started announcing riders post podcast. They are, they are putting an effort in meet this rider in a couple of facts and, you know, something funny. And so, not that I'm here trying to pound our trust, but it's just interesting to see in a short amount of time, right? A couple of comments and observations we've made publicly and people adapting, you know, and it's like, I don't, you know, need credit. We can edit this out and I don't, you know, I don't care. It's just an observation, but that's what we need moving forward. Every team needs to, even if they don't post on Instagram all year, they need to give us people that are passionate analysts or journalists about the sport something Right. And they also need to give the fans something as well, because you're not going to we're all unique. We're all little snowflakes and we're all going to find people that we're attracted to. But we can't find those people if we don't have a little bit of information. So we just need a little bit of work up front and then let us, you know, as this, you know, media roles, point those out, get fans to, you know, point them in a direction. This person likes Star Wars. This guy's likes you know, Star Trek, you know, this guy likes basketball, this guy likes football, whatever it might be, at least help 
curate that, but we, the teams need to, you know, make a step forward in getting that information accessible and out there so we can talk about it. Yeah, but it's also a matter of resources. I, I don't disagree with anything you just outlined, but I do think that we are asking teams to basically do all this media stuff for free somehow. And it's a really big ask from my perspective to ask them to continue to like when we, if you follow formula one at all, like the drivers, when they go to any town, their teams have them do these ridiculous personality bolstering activities. Right. And whether you like it or not, there's like 20 dudes that are getting paid to be there to like make this thing happen. And that's why we get that content. So I wonder if a solution-oriented approach on our end as people who have microphones and a platform that people actually listen to, like, could we, oh, gosh, I had a thought and it's sort of. <laughs> well, are you, are you suggesting, are you suggesting that we reach out to the teams and we say, tell us two truths and a lie about your riders or give us, yeah. you know, like, place of origin you know and their favorite food or ice cream flavor you know like give us something that we can go with i think that there's a way of doing it that doesn't seem too cringeworthy but yeah i think you're on the right path of getting a snippet but the snippet to me that's all that is so i feel like there still ought to be an opportunity for really understanding the rider and why they do what they do for that team and empowering that rider to really own that role. I think it also would give a lot of kids purpose out there. It would have given me purpose as a 23 year old, frankly, if I had known that, uh, like I was, I dealt with a lot of like just being frustrated, just fighting and fighting and fighting and not having any idea what I was fighting for. And maybe there's a way to think about, yeah, we get these snippets, but then we are also like, who's doing what, like give us a plan. And, What's the deal with people not giving us their race plans? Like, it's just your plan. What is the deal? Tell me, educate me on that real quick. Why, why don't people give up their race plans? Do yeah. you actually ask for them? Yeah, I mean, we, yeah. we, you know, definitely the first year I was commentating, it was like, hey, what's, what's your plan today? You know, what, what's the overall goal other than winning, right? Like, I don't need the basics. Like, oh, cross the line first. Well, duh. That's like kind of why everybody shows up. You know, I, hopefully that's why a majority of people are showing up is for themselves or their organization to to do that. But in what way, you know, gonna give me more and that, and I don't, my perspective, right. Talking with people, I don't know if they don't know, you know, they're just like mm -hmm. unsure, you know, they, it's like they have an idea or a thought, but then when kind of like confronted or asked about it, they kind of ball up and aren't so confident in it outside of their four five, six teammates, or if they really think that, you know, they have the secret sauce, you know, and, and they, and that goes into like, you know, not trusting me thinking that they're going to give me this information and then I'm going to go tell somebody else, right. Tell the competition. And that's fair. I'm new to the game, you know, in terms of this, you know, journalist analyst capacity, of being agnostic, unbiased. Like I really don't care who wins, you know, or who has what, you know, it's not, it's not my job to try to play God and be like, Oh, this guy's going to do this. So you should do that. And that, you know, that and it's like, if some, if a team wants that, they can just pay me and it. It, it can be that information could be to them and they can use, I can share all of my knowledge and experience helping one organization, but I have zero interest in trying to play people. I mean, that's just like, <laughs> um, that gets, it gets nowhere. So I try to ask, simply to be educated that way I can give the best possible analyst, you know, analysis of the race that way when this team attacks or that rider is doing this, I, I can, I know, f you know, five minutes ahead, 10 minutes ahead. Like I know the play and I can articulate that. I can bring the, the viewer in. It's like, okay, this guy's, this is not wasted energy, you know? Cause sometimes it looks like, what is that guy doing? And this goes to me without context makes no sense. But I've had teams tell me, bring me in, say, hey, this is what we're going to, we're going to try to do X, Y, Z. And then I see it play out and I go, okay, this is what they're trying to do. And then I can lead the viewer. I can lead, you know, the follower 
into that narrative, into that storyline. So I think if you go back and listen to races and, you know, me talk and follow certain teams, it's because those are the teams that kind of brought me in, you know, and said, Hey, they see the value in sharing that knowledge that way their story can get told, you know, and it, that, that platform is available to anybody, you know, that wants to reach out, you know, or, or have that conversation and trust myself, Gabe, you know, that when we were calling live the races that we do it as unbiasedly as possible in, in a point of view that we're just trying to share everybody's story and education with the viewer at home. And then whether that's a cat five or somebody that's really watching, you know, that has experience because if you watch any major sport and you listen to Troy Aikman talk about the game, they sit down with the teams, they sit down with the quarterbacks, they sit down with the coaches. What's your game plan? What do you guys need to do to be successful? What are things that you have to avoid to, you know, not lose this game? And those teams share that information, you know, and they trust that, you know, and at the end of the day, I had no, I could go when I was racing, I could go tell every team, scream for the mountain. This is what I'm going to do. It's their job to not let that happen, right? It's my job to make it happen. So, you know, that's how I see it is you should have the confidence and ability in your plan to execute it, regardless whether people know or not. I could say, hey, I'm going from the gun. Keep up if you can, right? Like who wants to ride? Who wants to get punched in the mail, mouth as soon as the gun goes off? Who's prepared for that? Let's fight it out, you know? So that's how, that's my view on it. So last question here, and I'm going to direct this at Gabe, but obviously Daniel, you can chime in. Where do we go from here? You know, we've created this nascent media structure. You know, Daniel and Gabe, you two getting involved with the live streams and the broadcasting over the last two years has fundamentally uh, expanded the scope of the broadcasts and made it more interesting, more intelligent and more educated. I've gotten an I like I I think I told you, Daniel, I watched the uh, video that you did from Gateway while I was uh was sick one week. I was supposed to be at Bucks County, but I got sick. And so I was sitting there just having a fever watching you race going, I have learned more in this 90 minutes than I think I had ever learned before in bike racing. Thank you, Daniel Holloway. Where do we go from here? What's the next step towards us becoming professional journalists, us becoming people who can push this sport, which has all the telltale signs of wanting to be bigger than it is to that next level where it can maybe achieve its maturity that we hope it can get to. I mean, for us, it's a matter of balancing our time. I think at home, we both have kids now and we have other jobs that we're using to support ourselves. And these projects are passion projects we have to dive as deep as we can on these projects and be responsible with them. But we also have to really understand like, you know, meter the effort type of thing. I think it's really easy to just say, yeah, we're going full bore. We're going to do more interviews. We're going to get Daniel into a bunch more races. We're going to plus up those productions. They're going to be amazing to watch. We're going to do all these things. Um, we can do all that. We are, Daniel and I are very capable people. And I think Rob, you have an amazing platform as well that you could probably uh, continue to complement the work that we've done with the call up. I think ultimately we've created this ecosystem. That's really cool, but it's time it's, and, and there's some uh, considerations in the, in that regard. Yeah. You're not getting rich off this, are you? Super, no. <laughs> super rich. Um, and I think even regardless if we were, or we weren't, you know, it's, you know, if you put in the work and somebody wants to pay for you, you know, that's like how the world works. Right. Um, but I think, you know, my mindset in, in all of this is it's not like us versus you. Like we're not trying to take market share from Criterion Nation and it's what's good for us is what's good for you. And what's good for you is what's good for us. And I think that is like the mindset that is completely missing from our sport and our ecosystem is everybody wants the, their little piece and nobody else wants to com com combine. And so as I move, you know, 
myself forward and you know the projects I have going and the call up and the live stream product is you know trusting that I'm building something for everybody to get something out of and if it's good for them it's going to be good for me right and whether that is happens fast or happens slow you know again my mindset from when I first started racing is it's it's a long haul you know I want to be a professional bike racer for 20 years I want to win 100 races not 10 and so moving into this next chapter of you know education I want to be here for the long haul I want to touch as many pe- people possible that may never told me you know that oh I watched the thing and I you know learned five things whatever it's Again, I'm indifferent to that feeling, you know, I'm putting it out there and people can take that, you know, education opportunity at their own, you know, accord. But, you know, if it grows, I'll grow with it. You know, it's kind of being at the top of the wall and reaching down and pulling somebody up with you, not being at the top, putting your foot down. And it's like, oh, nobody's, you know, there's only room for one. You know, the only way you kind of climb up is bring people up with you you know, is, is my, my mindset. And so it kind of brings me into the, this thing of, you know, finite and infinite games. You know, I'm not sure if you've, you've read this book or, you know, this, this philosophy, but I'm just going to read something to kind of close out, um, you know, my thoughts, but in a finite game, there's clearly defined endpoint, and there's always winners and losers. Well, in an infinite game, all parties are working to keep the game in play. Playing with a finite mindset in an infinite game comes with the cost of deteriorating cooperation, innovation, and longevity. While playing with an infinite mindset in an infinite game does not yield immediate results or guaranteed hypergrowth, but it may be able to outrun competitors. People who want to lay an excellent foundation for life choose infinite processes over finite results as they are adaptable and can quickly change principles and processes to keep playing. And so I think if we read that, and reflect on where our sport is and who is operating within it, we can clearly see who's playing finite games and who's trying to play infinite games. And I think if our ecosystem gets into the infinite game mindset and trust the process of that, the sport will grow and thrive. And everybody in that will grow and thrive and be where they want to be. But if you're playing a finite game to only benefit yourself, it can only last so long. Well, since we brought philosophy into this, this is always the perfect place to end it for the night. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com for everything you need to know about independent cycling media. We will be back in, I don't know, a couple days, a few weeks. You never know. With an interview with Maggie Coles Lister of Israeli Premier Tech Roland, we go back, look at the whole season from the beginning of chaos through to actual solid ground where she stood on at the end of the year talking track talking road talking all about it everything we can it's a great interview and i'm looking forward to sharing it with you so join us here again next time for more stories from our criterium nation